This is Ron Stockton. Okay. Let's, uh, this is kind of a mini lecture, like a half lecture, but it's about the Ottoman perspective on Zionism, which is a really different, for, for me, I, I knew what the British thought about Zionism. I knew what the Palestinians thought. I knew what the Zionists thought. I knew what the Christian Zionists thought. We haven't talked about them yet, but we will. I didn't know what the Ottomans thought. And, you know, it's their, it's their land. It's their province. So I read a book by a man named Mandel. It was written in 1976. And I'm so glad that I did. The title doesn't even mention the Ottomans. It says the Arabs and the Zionists. Okay. It's a study of how Arab intellectuals and, and Arab newspapers and Arab organizations and Palestinian organizations, those are two different things, how they reacted to uh, Zionism. But Mandel talks about how the Ottomans reacted. So let's, let's try to think about this from an Ottoman perspective. In the late 19th century, Turkey was known as the sick man of Europe. It was a, a country waiting to collapse. Like a ripe apple hanging from a tree, held up only by the hands fighting over which one got to catch it. That's what one person said. So why was it so weak? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. One is that they had a lot of debt, was inefficient, and they had a lot of debt. A second thing was that it was an empire. And an empire, is a kingdom is a single unit. Everybody is subject to the king. An empire is different. It's made up of multiple political systems. So an empire can have a king within it. You say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Well, it sort of does if you're used to having an empire. So if you've got an empire, you can have a province, which is self-governing, a zone that collects its own, uh, its, own, its own taxes and just sends you a share. It's not direct. By having those different nations, different peoples within it, the Turks had a problem because there were Arabs who wanted independence. There were Palestinians who wanted independence. There were Kurds who wanted independence. And most serious of all, there were Armenians who wanted independence. The Armenians were in Eastern Turkey, as it is now, deep into Anatolia, the, pro the whole big eastern part of Turkey is called Anatolia. And uh, the, the Armenians had an actual resistance movements. If the Armenians ever got their independence, the Ottomans were afraid that there would be a house of cards syndrome in which you know what a house of cards is all the cards are stacked up to make a little house but if you if you move one card everything collapses 
So there was a House of Cards scenario, a scary one, in which the whole of the Armenian, the Ottoman Empire could collapse. There was another complication, and that was starting in the 1700s. The Ottomans had suffered a series of military defeats against European countries, and each time they suffered a defeat, there were what were called capitulations. They would make a concession. Okay, you can control the trade in this place or this or that. In time, some of those capitulations involved protectorate arrangements. What does this mean? This means that a European country would be determined, would be designated as the protector of a given community. So the Maronites, the Catholics of Lebanon, were protected by the French. The Russians in Palestine were protected by the Russian Orthodox. The British protected the Protestants. That means anytime they had a complaint, the British, the French, the Russians, whoever claimed the right to intervene on their behalf. So the, the Ottomans were afraid that once the Jews came in, somebody would become their protector. And indeed, who is the protector of the Jewish state today? It's the Americans. Anytime Jews are threatened, anytime Israel is threatened, we claim the right to send in forces, to send in weapons, to, to, to intervene in the United Nations to stop a resolution. We basically have a, a protectorate status over Israel. I tell you, the Ottomans were terrified of this, that there was going to be yet another group. In other words, the Jews would become a wedge whereby outside powers could insert themselves into Ottoman domestic politics. So these are some different issues that were floating around. Now, the Ottomans during this time were very open to immigration. In fact, they were very open to Jewish immigration. Why? Because it was a backward country. And they thought, you know, if Jews or anybody else, the French, we don't care. If, but if the Jews come in and they bring in their skills and some investment money, that's going to be fantastic for our country. They're going to create jobs. They're going to do whatever they can. So they had a policy that was very friendly towards Jews. Welcome. Y'all come. You can settle anywhere you want in our empire, but not in Palestine. Why? Because if they go to Palestine, sooner or later, even Jews who are not Zionists, there are Zionists out there and they're going to start claiming those Jews as a part of their group. And so Jews were welcome anywhere in Anatolia, but they were not welcome in Palestine. In fact, they were not supposed to go to Palestine. Hmm. The Ottomans drew a distinction 
between the indigenous Jewish population. This is another thing we don't think about. There were a lot of Jews in the Ottoman Empire who were Turks. They were Turkish Jews. They had been there some since 1492 when the Jews got kicked out of, uh, of Spain and many of them went to the Ottoman Empire. There were some places in uh, Northern Africa that were technically Ottoman provinces. So once you got there, they say, oh, you know, you could, you could make money, have a nice job, have a nice, nice life back in the homeland. So the Jews started migrating towards Turkey itself. So there were a lot of a lot of Jews. Those Jews were they were they were citizens. They were Turkish citizens. They were loyal Turkish citizens. They paid their taxes and they, you know, prayed for, prayed for the Sultan and whatever it is that loyal citizens do. There's a difference between those Jews and the Jews who are citizens of Russia or citizens of France. But Russia was the source of most of the Zionists. So a Russian Jew is different. You know why? Because they got a passport. They got that little passport right there, which has the czar's stamp on it. What that means is they could move into Turkey and they could claim to be perfectly loyal, good citizens. But you know what? Where's their heart? And let's forget about their heart for a minute. If they get in trouble, the czar might step in and say, okay, leave our people alone. And they say, wait, those are not your people. They're our people. They took an oath of loyalty. Well, they're still our people because they've got our passport. So the Turks said, this raised, this raised an issue for the first time of what is called dual loyalty. Exactly where is your loyalty? You claim to be here a citizen of the Sultan, and yet you've got another passport. So what the, what the Turks said was, if you want to come here and live, fine, you're really welcome, but you're going to have to give up your passport. We only want you to have one passport, not two. This is the issue of dual loyalty or dual passports. So uh, that, that's another complication. This is so much more complex than I ever thought. So when I'm looking for some thoughts here. There was another issue about Jews coming in that uh, they said, okay, if you go to Palestine, you could come into Palestine, maybe a few. You can buy a piece of land. You can be a, become a farmer. That's fine. You negotiate with the local Arab farmers. You buy some land. Okay. Somebody's got uh, 50 acres. They only need 40 of it. So they sell you 10 acres. That's good. So now you're a farmer. But you know what the Zionists did? They changed it. There was not individual land ownership, there was collective land ownership. That was a different ball game. It was somehow more threatening that now you're going to have massive amounts of land potentially owned by an organization which basically views itself as an independent people with foreign allies. German allies, British allies, French allies, Russian allies, whatever they may be. That's scary. 
Zionism became a threat. The number of Jews began to increase rapidly. Now here we're talking about foreign Jews, right? We're not talking about the uh, domestic, the, the, the traditional Turkish Jews. That they're, not in, they're not in these numbers. But in terms of Zionist Jews, foreign Jews, not all were Zionists in the early years, by the way. But in terms of foreign Jews, let me give you some numbers. In 1882, there were 20,000. And we've talked about where they live. They live in those traditional five places where, uh, or was it four? Where, uh, where Jews had traditionally lived, Hebron, Jerusalem, Safed, Tiberias, I guess those are the ones. 20,000 people in 1882. By 1897, they were 50,000, and they had 18 different settlements. Okay, those settlements, they're like enclosures. They had their own schools. They had their own everything, their own economy. They began to be competitive with local people. In the early days, those individual farmers, they were cooperative. The local people welcomed them. That's a true fact. Palestinians will often say, you know, we got along with the Jews. That's true. Actually, there was cooperation, business deals, you know, that could be true. But once it became collective, and once Jews formed a community, and once they provided only their own labor, that's the idea of Zionism. All the labor is provided. The Jews become a working people. That's the phrase that they used. That's a different situation. There was also the concept of shared pasture. Now, this is an old traditional sort of pre-capitalist concept that there, there would be a, uh, you know, a, a town and there would be some land outside of it and it's open land. And this in Britain is called the commons. Historically, it doesn't exist anymore, but there used to be what was called the commons, and anybody could take their sheep and graze them on that commons land. Who owned it? Well, the community owned it. It's like a national park. Who owns it? Nobody owns it. Uh, yeah, they do. We the people own it. Nobody's got a title to it because it's it's our land. It's the it's the country's land. So that was owned by the village. The village would have. Uh, open land. Well, you know what happened when the when the Zionists came in with their Western way of thinking that if you don't have a title to the land and you don't own it, they came in and they, they would not recognize the legitimacy of this public grazing land. They said, no, we're going to claim that. It's not claimed. Look at that. It's empty land. Land without people. For people without land. We're going to claim that. So they started claiming that. Okay, this is really creating problems because now you're, you're increasing poverty in towns, aren't you? Because now where, you, where are people going to graze their sheep? Because they've lost their grazing lands. By the way, we had that. We Americans were struggling with that, too. Uh, when I was a kid and we would go to these cowboy movies that we had, very often there was a struggle between the, sh the farmers and the, uh, and, and the herdsmen. The herdsmen wanted to have open land, and the farmers wanted to settle the land. And say, well, this is my farm. You can graze your sheep somewhere else, or sorry, graze your, graze your cattle somewhere else. Uh, but uh, the, so we we struggle with those same same things. <clears throat> there were also, this is something we overlook, but Mandel discusses this. There were local Jewish communities in Lebanon and in Palestine and other places. Those local communities did not like the Zionists. 
because the Zionists came in with European Western values, those local Jews were basically they had they had they had acquired local culture. They were Arabic in culture. They were Turkish. They had their loyalties, their local loyalties to uh, the local population, the local regime, and they did not like the Zionists. So there was a lot of uh, tension, and people talk about this all the time. I think they kind of got those those uh, those pre-Zionist Jews. They kind of got pushed aside or absorbed within the Zionist structure in Palestine. But anyway, that was something else uh, that that we should uh, keep in mind. The idea of Arab independence was strong too. And there was an idea of Palestinian independence. And now we're talking in the late 1800s and early 20th century, right? Arab independence and the Arab independence movement and the Palestinian independence movement. Ah, those are a little bit in tension with each other, right? The Arabs say, look, we should all be Arabs. This is Nasser's argument later. Uh, 50 years later, right? We should all be Arabs. We should subsume these independent, don't be a Syrian, don't be a Palestinian, be an Arab. So there was an Arab national movement to take this whole Eastern region and make that an independent country. That would have been a nice idea. But then this, the Palestinians are saying, no, Palestine is different. I mean, independence for the Arabs is good, but we wanted Palestinian land here. This is our land. There's one other complication, and uh, just a minute, let me see this, wait a minute. How long have we been going on? I wrote down when we started. Anyway, we haven't been going on so long. There's one last complication. The Arab intellectuals and the Turkish government was monitoring Zionist writings very carefully. The whole idea is that, uh, you know, the, the Arabs and the Turks didn't really know much about Zionism. It just kind of, no, they knew a lot. They had, they had very good intellectuals who were reading Jewish newspapers. They spoke Hebrew. They read Jewish newspapers. They read, read Western newspapers. They read, they read Herzl. They read all of these pamphlets and all of these statements. They were, they had a, they had a research center where they were studying those things. I don't know if it was a research center, but within the government, there were people who were charged with reading all of this. And there were newspapers where the editors were monitoring this very carefully, especially in Beirut and other places. So there was a man named Usiskin, U-S-S-I-S-K-I-N. We didn't study him. We didn't read about him. I haven't read his his writings very much, but he's noted for saying that Palestine, when we are in control, is going to be a Jewish region. This will be Jewish land. This is our land. This is Eretz Israel. This is the promised land. This is our national heritage. 
and everybody who's not a Jew should leave or be expelled. Oh my gosh, now they're saying, you know, this, this man who was not a mainstream Zionist is now saying all the non-Jews have to be kicked out. All the Muslims have to be kicked out. All the Christians have to be kicked out. Whoa, not good. The Turks were aware of this and they were afraid. When someone says they're gonna do something, take them at their word. When someone says they're gonna harm you, take them at their word. They probably mean it. Okay, that's what I have. Now that didn't take so long, did it? I don't know how long that was, maybe 20 minutes or so. Who knows, maybe 30 minutes, I don't know. Goodbye.